I would like to dedicate uh, tonight's practice, all the merit of uh, all of our practice tonight to Dr. Phil Barron and his, his journey, wherever he may be at this point, whatever process that is. And um, so tonight, I actually want to talk about gratitude and trust. Gratitude and trust as two characteristics to cultivate in living life in the face of the inevitableness of death and the uncertainty of the time of your death, both of which are true, both are realities for you at whatever age you may be. This is a poem uh, that was written by Stanley Kunitz, who uh, has twice been the National Poet Laureate of the United States, um, the second time when he was 95 years old. And he wrote this poem in his very early 90s. It's called The Layers. And you will see in it the acknowledgement of change, what we call in Nietzsche, that everything must change that there is an inevitableness to loss in life, and that there is gratitude in the face of this loss, and that there is a, a <laughs> kind of a call that is the call of trust to live into life, to die into life rather than to die away from life. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. Some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind as I am compelled to look before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling towards the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a ri rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat, with my will intact to go wherever I need to go, and every stone on the road precious to me. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered, and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus-clouded voice directed me, Live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. So is the call to each of us to live in the layers of our life, not on the, with the litter, the surface feeling, the, 
the little gains and losses, the little fears and wants, but to live in the layers and to the depth, to live in the mystery of life. We each have that small, quiet voice, that nimbus-clouded voice that is an inner feeling that manifests in one way or another. So there are many ways, there are many uh, characteristics that can be cultivated to aid us in this process. Gratitude and trust are two that are not so often mentioned. And uh, it's part of the process to reflect on all of these different characteristics. So let us reflect on these two tonight in relation to uh, Phil and his journey. I, uh, it's quite common at the end of a retreat that a yogi will say, uh, well, what kind of practice can I do in living my daily life? What can I be uh, using my mindfulness for in my work life and, and with my significant other and my children and so forth. What sort of mindfulness should I cultivate? And uh, on um, some occasions, the practice I give is mindfulness of gratitude. And it always causes a bit of surprise and uh, skepticism even because they expect loving kindness or to see grasping, or so why gratitude? But uh, gratitude is actually a very good mindfulness practice, and it's particularly useful for uh, yogis who tend to uh, have a self-defeating attitude or kind of a semi-depressive feeling that's a, a regular experience in their daily lives, or for people who have uh, some inclination towards the ecstatic state. And then for what we in Buddhism refer to the uh, aversive personality type, meaning that each of us have a, a general inclination towards being greed types where we walk into a room and we immediately notice what we like. Or we walk into a room and we notice what we don't like, the aversive type. Or we walk into a room and we don't really notice anything, the delusional type. <laughs> So we're each one of these types, and we each have all three uh, characteristics in, in great bountifulnesses, you've already noticed. But uh, there is one that we, we, we are primarily one of these three types. And for the aversive type, this sense of gratitude, particularly useful, mindfulness of gratitude in the moment. Uh, one of the Buddha's teachings uh, was centered around uh, the appreciation of gratitude for having a human life. He described the gift of a human life as being more rare than the chance of a blind turtle in all the oceans of the world coming to the surface of the ocean and sticking his head through a small hoop. <laughs> Pretty long odds, huh? So he, he was pointing to the fact that a human life, no matter the circumstances, no matter how difficult, no matter what you have to uh, work with, no matter your age, is not to be taken lightly, but it in fact it is a real gift. 
it is the uh, one manifestation where there is this possibility of liberation. He also, uh, in the suttas, quite frequently when giving uh, meditation instructions or telling someone to go meditate, will say to, uh, to one of his monks uh, to retreat into the forest and sit at the foot of a tree and to begin uh, to quiet the mind by gladdening the heart. And on retreats, I often teach a meditation around gladdening the heart. And it has to do with a, a series of reflections of gratitude. Gratitude for human life, for uh, being interested in your own liberation, your own freedom, for having the means to uh, seek out the teachings, for the teachings to be available, so forth and so on. Uh, this whole process, it's very uh, stirring kind of meditation, and it's a gratitude meditation. So the benefit, the, the reason for practicing mindfulness of gratitude is that when you make that connection, when you aim and sustain your attention on the experience of, of gratitude, having the actual experience, not a concept or alter should, but yeah, I actually feel some gratitude right now. In that direct connection, you make a connection to life. You have a direct experience to life, just as it is. So often, because we have feelings of being alone, of somehow being unfairly treated or um, uh, not sure of ourselves or afraid of the future or uh, uh, uneasy over the past, we don't really make that direct connection to life. We don't have a direct experience of life to, uh, to the blue sky like today or to the breeze or to uh, all of the, the miracles that surround that we're able to walk, talk, drive down the highway. I mean, all of these thousands upon thousands upon millions of connections that allow the human experience. So when we come into mindfulness of gratitude, this arises, and it arises as a very strong experience at times. We become present in the now, the eternal now, that's not defined by past and future, but defined by this moment. It is a mystical state, even in its ordinariness, let alone in those times when uh, we're completely altered by it. When we are strongly in this experience, which uh, is, is not going to be a regular experience, but uh, the more cultivated, the more it occurs, we are in, con in connection to, we are participating in the mystery of life, the kind of mystery that uh, Kunitz was referring to in his poem, that mystery of change, which we don't understand, but which we can live fully consciously. Uh, in uh, the Christian tradition, uh, Paul says in the Bible, in everything give thanks. Meaning in anything that arises, even if it seems awful, to give thanks for it in some way, to hold it in a mystery. 
This may be uh, illustrated in a Sufi story, which some of you have probably heard already. Uh, there was a, uh, one of the, the sort of elders of a village, and his son uh, uh, had, a, had uh, really wanted to uh, be a horseman, and the villager, uh, the, the, he lost his horses before the son was of age to really become a master horse person. And so the son went out to try to capture a wild horse. And lo and behold, he did. And he came back with this beautiful, beautiful black stallion. And all the other people in the villagers said to the elder, oh, your son is so fortunate. He's so fortunate. He must be the luckiest boy in this village. And the elder said, we'll see. And that's all he would say. We'll see. And then the son was learning to uh, uh, ride this uh, wild stallion, and the horse bucked him and broke his leg, just shattered the leg bone. And then all the people came to the elder and said, oh, your son is so unfortunate. Our sons are healthy, and your son is like this. Oh, he must be cursed or something. He's so unfortunate. And the elder said, we'll see. We'll see. That's all he would say. And then a few weeks later, uh, the, the king's army came through the village and conscripted every young man, forced him to join the army. And his son was spared because of the leg. And many of their sons, of course, were going off to die. And then all the villagers came to the elder and said, oh, your son is so lucky. <laughs> and the elder would only say, we'll see. We'll see. Our lives are like that. The unfolding is a mystery. It is not uh, to be known in a linear fashion. We will always have preference. Why wouldn't we? You know, if, if we're freezing to death, we want to be warm. If we're lonely, we want companionship. This is natural. There's nothing that's imprisoning in that desire. It is that preference, uh, to put it uh, more specifically. It is only when that preference becomes such a desire that we so identify with that desire that we start to grasp for it. Oh, if I can only have this, I'll be happy forever. Oh, if only this will go away, I'll be happy forever. Has it ever happened that way for you? That in fact you were happy forever after getting this thing you had to have? And how many times have you gotten what you wanted and said, oh, I wish this would go away? <laughs> so it's that grasping. It's not resting back in the mystery, not staying in that spacious feeling of gratitude to be participating in the mystery. This is one way to live into life by staying back in the mystery of life. In cultivating gratitude, it brings delight to our lives. It balances the tendency towards the negative. It is a palpable joy. It's a felt experience like the difference between looking at your hand, like looking at something like a television show or something, and actually having the feeling of your hand where you feel the joy of your life. It's direct. It's not through someone or anything else. It's your experience. And it certainly creates a sense of well-being. In bringing uh, uh, the practice of mindfulness of gratitude to daily life, you certainly try to practice that when something's going well. You're having a good moment. 
ah, this is a good moment, thanks to this good moment. But uh, more skillful is to practice it when things aren't going well. So you're in some difficult situation at work or you're convinced that you, know, you can't live with your significant other one more minute. And it's really awful feeling. And it truly feels awful. You may feel devastated. You may uh, uh, have a big loss around this. You notice things to be grateful for in that moment without any way trying to deny your experience of what's unpleasant, what's the sense of loss. You add, and this is to be grateful for in this. You expand your field of attention so that the sense of, of loss or fear or need that is causing you to contract into narrow into this small imprisoned being, you open it up. You become more spacious without ever denying, I can't emphasize this enough, without ever denying that, that primary experience. It changes that experience. It offers new opportunities for you to respond to it, whether it's fear or wanting or uncertainty, because you, you're spacious, so your intuition is more available to you, and your perspective of, oh, I see what's going on, it's wider, so you're more likely to see clearly. Not guaranteed to see clearly, but more likely. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> we'll check in with you next week. <laughs> so um, when a difficult emotion arises, say it's anger, you experience the anger and you include the and. I am angry and. I am healthy in this moment. I am angry and I have eyes that can see or ears that can hear. It can be something small, big, it doesn't matter. You are breaking the uh, repetition of, of the, the emotion that's causing you to contract through gratitude. Another way to cultivate uh, mindfulness of gratitude is through wonderment. Wonderment in terms of nature, which so many of us uh, uh, like doing and tend to do and in terms of the human capacity for good, for creation. We certainly notice, uh, and we talk so much about the human capacity for creating suffering, not to be denied, but to balance, be balanced with that other aspect of the human capacity. Uh, I sometimes have people actually make a list of things to be grateful for, and so that not, not caring what goes on the list, but just to continue to open the mind to the, to the intricacies of things to be grateful for. Cultivation of mindfulness of gratitude is not to cultivate a sense of obligation or debt or uh, some sort of a should coming out of this, but rather it's to open into life itself. They, uh, the generosity that comes out of gratitude is a, is a generosity t towards yourself, towards all of life. It's, it's not a kind of specific paying back out of obligation, but a sense of bountifulness, a far more skillful way to experience uh, whatever it is that comes. Uh, one of the things that I also will sometimes ask people is when you are focused uh, on 
your life. The, of all the things that go well in your life, all the things that, you know, that, hey, I'm glad it's this way and not some other way. And then you look at all the things that aren't so good in your life. There's, a, there's sort of a truth ratio there of like, well, you know, if I got this many things I'm glad for. I got this many things that, you know, are difficult. In terms of your experience of your life, is it in line with the actual ratio of your life's experience? For most people, not at all. And then another reflection that you can use in cultivating gratitude is when you have had something that you've really appreciated, you've really been grateful for, and then something new comes up to your mind, you know, maybe it's the next minute or the next day or the next week. Where did that gratitude go? Where did it go? Is gratitude time-based in the untrained mind such that you actually only notice gratitude when you're immediately getting a payoff for something? Like, whoo, I'm grateful for this because I've got it right now. Is that really the way you want to live your life? You can think about that. There is uh, a darkness to life that uh, is not to be denied. So the living in gratitude is in the face of the darkness of life. We live in dark times right now. A lot of suffering in the world, a lot of suffering of which we're part of in the world. It's a dark time. Gratitude in the face of dark time, not in denial of it. Yet I turn, I turn exulting somewhat with my will intact to go wherever I need to go and every stone on the road precious to me. Every stone in the road, not the ease but the stone. Gratitude in all things. To cultivate mindfulness of gratitude uh, there is uh, uh, a shadow side which uh, maybe you've fallen into or uh, you have been in an environment where someone used this shadow side of gratitude in which to say, oh, well, yes, I'm just grateful for what I have or uh, yes, I know it's not right, but still we've got this, where gratitude is used as rationalization or denial when there is really a call for action. So that's the shadow of gratitude. That's not true gratitude. That's using it in a way to deny what's called for in the moment. When um, uh, uh, Henry Thoreau uh, was uh, living uh, and, and studying all these texts with uh, Emerson, they were reading various Hindu texts and Buddhist texts and Taoist texts, and out of this reflection came our own uh, kind of inner uh, practices. And Thoreau wrote, which I, all of you had to read this at some point in school, I suspect. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach. And not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. That's a, a commitment to gratitude towards life. It's trusting that there is something in life 
to be known and to give oneself over to it. Uh, there's a Sufi uh, uh, a poet, Rumi, whom again most of you would know, and he has a poem called The Guest House. This being a human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. I really like that image. You know that feeling, huh? <laughs> when you're wiped out over some feeling that arises. He, meaning Shams in his word, he, he may be clearing you out for some new delight. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. This is mindfulness of gratitude. As one cultivates this feeling, uh, particularly in uh, the meditative environment of your daily practice or on retreat, there arises a sense of grace spontaneously. Another teacher here at Spirit Rock, Eugene Cash, sometimes refers to it as the fifth Brahma Vihara, the fifth heavenly mind state, this kind of uh, uh, gratitude of grace. As that develops, what happens on the spiritual transformation level is that your sense of well-being becomes less and less fixated on your personal needs. And there arises a sense of well-being that's independent of the external conditions, never indifferent to them, but less and less dependent on them. And external conditions includes your own mind states. And there uh, arises out of that less concern about your own life and there comes a uh, kind of rejoicing in the fact that, there th that there's joy in life, whomever is receiving it. So the gratitude becomes a kind of selfless gratitude. Dalai Lama being a person who uh, manifests that so well. Um, and then uh, the, uh, the kind of joy that is life is, is, is sort of like a moment of meditation. It's quiet and it's spacious, a very different experience. Again, with all the teachings, you're not asked to believe this, but to reflect on it and to see for yourself through experimentation, through practice in your life. Trust uh, is a, a kind of relationship to the moment that's often confused for people. There is a, a kind of trust that uh, is the common use of that word, which in the dictionary is defined as confident dependence. Confidence de dependence, which uh, is confident dependence on a person or an event or uh, some sort of uh, activity. That kind of trust is time-based, it's a highly contingent relationship to life. The Buddha taught a kind of trust that he said 
represented the inner freedom from external conditions. It is a spiritual faculty to be cultivated. And it's not based on past and future. It's not contingent on anything. It is a trust in the moment. And it is to be cultivated as one of the spiritual faculties. It is not attached to outcome, which is very scary because we so tend to live our lives attached to outcome. This common trust that we uh, think of and live most often and the Buddha's definition of trust are not in conflict, but they're to be integrated and it's tough to integrate them. You can think of the common kind of usage of trust as being a, what's called transactional trust, which is a future outcome-based trust. It's time-centric. It's based very much in past and future. It's performance-based. It's exchange-based. It's not really trust-trust. It's exchange-based. So if I will trust you if you do this, if you in fact perform. Trans transactional trust is not bad. If you're going to the car mechanic to get your car fixed, the brakes fixed, you want to be able to trust them that they're going to fix the brakes, right? Ideally, you trust them to charge you a fair price and to get it done on time and to treat you with a level of dignity. Transactional trust is the fabric of the community. Even in the Buddhist community, transactional trust was very important. There's a thick book called the Vinaya that's the rules that the monks had to live by. And the longer the Buddha taught and the more monks he had, the, the thicker the, 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 the rule book grew. We are all dependent on each other. And the basis of that dependence is trust. So each time we act in a trustworthy manner, we're sowing one more web of that trust, that, that web of trust that supports us all. So you can view transactional trust and your being part of transactional trust as spiritual practice. It's sila. It's those, uh, the right speech, right action, right livelihood. Three of the Eightfold Path. So transactional trust is not to be uh, treated lightly at all. But it is not freedom. It's uh, creating the environment for freedom. The kind of trust the Buddha was talking about is sometimes referred to as innate trust. It is trust in the moment, even in the midst of transactional trust. So you're there getting your car fixed and uh, you, you, uh, you're not treated quite right by the uh, person, the car mechanic. You trust yourself to be able to uh, stand up for yourself. You, uh, you trust that there, there is the possibility of it working out right with that car mechanic, even though it may not. It's not dependent on the outcome. It's a trust in the moment unfolding as best it can. It is a trust in the innate dignity of life. It is a trust that you can live in the moment. 
that your inner values can manifest in the moment. It is trusting life to unfold. It is not an exchange base. Life may be, the next moment may be very unpleasant. It may be awful. It doesn't change innate trust. You want a transactional trust, use common sense and you don't trust someone uh, that you have seen as unreliable. But you don't abandon the innate trust in that person. It's a paradox. But that's the only way of there being ever hope of any kind of a future, any kind of a growth in, in the web, actually, is through the innate trust. It's not based on the future. It's not in clock time. It is surrendering the measurement of our lives by the outcome of, of the manifestation of the moment. Again, a pretty radical teaching. We as lay people can do that just as those who have gone forth as monks and nuns can do it. There is um, a third kind of trust that um, sometimes gets confused with both innate trust and transactional trust. And I call it uh, false trust or demand trust. And you've each been subjected to this kind of trust. And you may well have uh, practiced this kind of trust. I'll give you a few examples. I trust you to meet my needs. I trust you not to change. I trust you to want what I want for you. I trust you to be other than you are. Pretty difficult kind of trust to meet, huh? This is actually a form of aggression <laughs> that arises from fear, from a kind of uh, excessive need in the moment, this overwhelmed by wanting. So it's really distrust disguised as trust. It arises when any of us fail to trust the moment, fail to trust life to unfold. And in small ways, each of us do this to one another. So, you know, the, we pin the tail on our own donkey here. When we're faced with that kind of trust, it's a very difficult situation to work with because there is not uh, a, a true meeting of the minds. Many times in our lives, we are uh, distrustful because we're not accepting things the way they are. Uh, I've been focused on uh, trust in, in recent weeks because uh, at the end of one of my, I teach Sunday night at the Turtle Island Yoga Center in San Rafael, which you're each invited to come, by the way. Um, but um, at, at the end of the class, it's, uh, uh, people typically come up and ask questions. And uh, this one yogi was um, hanging back and waiting, and not a person that I was very familiar with, but uh, I knew they had a strong practice, but didn't. They, they just started coming to my Sunday evening. And so she came up and she said, you know, um, I'm a person that really valued trusting someone. And I've come to think that 
uh, it's really interfering with my practice because the uh, trust is really just attachment. It's just really wanting some future outcome. I'm caught in the future and I think I should just abandon this whole thing of trust. And it's, it's, it's clearly uh, uh, attachment. Very upset, very, very upset. And so I said, wait a minute here. <laughs> and uh, the, what unfolded was uh, uh, she had just uh, broken up with her lover and in a way where she felt betrayed by the lover, uh, upset not over the breakup so much as a sense of betrayal that had occurred around it. And in uh, her work situation, uh, she had a new boss and she had a, she had a, a big position and a lot of people that trusted her and she wasn't trusting her boss. And she was very upset over this because she didn't know how to do her job and hold the trust for all the people that worked for her. So she was really upset about this. And as we talked about it, it became clear that she had confused these various kinds of trust. So that uh, with, the, uh, with the lover, she had in fact ignored all sorts of signs that on a transactional trust basis, this was not a man to be trusted, <laughs> just not. Her wanting, she was wanting, she was actually involved in a kind of demand trust. She was wanting him to be other than he was. And of course it wasn't working out. And it didn't work out. And she had had plenty of time to see that, but her, her own wants. And so suddenly, instead of being caught in him and all of the stuff about him, oh, this was something in her and she could work with it. She'd go, oh, I see how to work with this. And so there, there, there was a different unfolding. In terms of the, the situation at work with the boss, a, a, a different situation there because in fact, uh, when, when she really characterized this boss, he was just the way he was, you know? It was just the way he was, like all of us are just the way we are. She was not trusting herself. She wasn't trusting that if she just manifested in the moment as best she could, life was going to work out as best it possibly could. It was not a situation where she couldn't actually cope. She just wasn't trusting herself. She was uh, uh, wanting to make it a transactional trust with that person that was not practical. This person was the way he was, not hidden at all. It was out front, very mercurial, very up and down, very afraid, an afraid kind of person, and therefore uh, would contract in all sorts of situations. She didn't have to go up and down with that person. It was, it was her not trusting herself that was doing her in. So suddenly she had a way to work with it. So using her spiritual practice, she was actually finding a way to be free in daily life. And her initial question was such a good question because she was prepared to look at herself very, you know, uh, harshly in terms of going, whoa, I'm clinging to trust here. It was confusion rather than the clinging, but uh, really to be admired as a question.
There are things in life that uh, give us confidence and innate trust. These are things that, in my life, I experienced this way, and some of which I'm going to say, which the Buddha taught. You are to decide for yourself what you trust. First of all, I think we can trust human beings to be human beings. They will act according to the nature of the species, which means that they're going to be unpredictable. They're going to be ever-changing. They're going to be generous and self-centered. All of these things. We laugh about that, but in fact, it relieves some sort of pressure, you know? That's the way human beings are. We can't get it right because it's always changing and they're up and down. So this idea that somehow it's supposed to be right, it undermines our sense of trust. We don't stay in our own trust. Secondly, life is ever-changing. The law of a Nietzsche, just as uh, Stanley Cunard started his poem. Things are always changing. And therefore, there's not something that we're supposed to hold on to. We're not failures if something changes and then we're messed up. No, that was life. We can trust ourselves. That's just life happening. It's impersonal. It's not about us. It's not about you. Likewise, I would suggest to you that you can trust cultivating your intention based on your values, your intention as to how you wish to manifest in this moment to be what will bring you the most harmonious life, whatever degree of harmony that is in your life. To trust the intentions in this moment, to live in this moment, to be committed to live in this moment, and trust that intention to manifest. That doesn't mean you give up planning or, uh, or evaluating, but it means you spend a lot less time at it. And you just show up in the moment. When, the, uh, uh, when we come to know the Dharma, uh, which I won't try to list all the many facets of the Dharma as the Buddha taught tonight. But the more you come to know the Dharma, I would suggest to you, the more you realize that you can trust life to unfold according to the Dharma's teaching. And, uh, whatever your religious beliefs are, but that, that, that's not the point. But the, the Dharma, in fact, is so much about life as it is. Your metaphysical interpretation of all of that can be all uh, here or there or whatever. And the Dharma is still the Dharma. That's what's so beautiful and precious about it, is that it says, life is like this. See for yourself. When we start to trust life, and that's just trusting life enough, you know, like Winnicott's, uh, those of you who are in psychology, the Winnicott's good enough mother, you know, this that is that the, the mother is good enough that the child learns to trust life. In that same way, if we cultivate trust in life just enough, it doesn't mean that we are, oh, I this perfect trusting of life. I'm, I never get lost never in my fears and my wants. Just trusting life enough, it empowers you to show up for life, to be vulnerable to life, to have the courage to open your heart 
and your sense of possibility to life, even in the face of all the difficulties. And again, it's a dark time in many ways. Still, by having trust, we show up. Trust allows us to stay in the moment because we trust enough just to stay here. We don't go into our fantasy. We don't go into planning the future. We don't go into storytelling. We stay here. Oh, this is what it feels like to be with my significant other in this moment. This is what it's like to face this moment in my presentation at work or my uh, having to deal with this difficult person at work. Trust allows us to offer what we have to offer. It may be love. It may be care. It may be creativity. It may be compassion. It may be support. It may actually be the ability to create order, to actually foster trust. That may be all we have to offer in this moment, but we can offer that. So trust allows us to offer whatever we have in the moment to offer. And sometimes it's not much, but there's always something we have to offer, no matter how down we are or confused we are. If we trust to uh, life enough to just offer whatever it is in that moment. If we have this kind of trust, if we've cultivated trust in this way, it allows us to stay grateful for the wonderment of life the wonderment of life in the inevitableness of our own death, the inevitableness of the uncertainty of the time of our own death. Trust allows us to live into life in the face of death. So powerful. Gratitude fosters trust. Trust fosters gratitude. And we are allowed to live into life. Mary Oliver, a favorite poet for many people who come to Spirit Rock, has a poem called When Death Comes. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades. I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride, married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world 
into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Um, one of the things that uh, we, when we were sharing about uh, Phil Barron and his life, uh, so many things he had done for other people. And when we had to call his widow here in Mill Valley, the, one of the things she said that was so stirring, she, they, had, uh, they had only recently been married about three years ago, and she said that she had never been loved the way she had been loved by him. And she had such gratitude for that. And then a few days later, uh, we were talking with her again, and she said, you know, I am so glad he got to, to uh, have his passing in the midst of the Dharma. He lived his life. We each live our lives. Questions or sharings? Anything anyone wants to say? So uh, let's sit for a moment then. Come into the body. Feel the feet on the floor, the buttocks on the chair or cushion, the movement of air through the body. This moment, arising out of silent awareness, Spacious. With gratitude for life. Trust life. Live into life. Die into life. May you be safe from internal and external harm. May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you be physically strong, healthy, and vital. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. And may the merit of our actions this evening be to the benefit of Philip Barron in his journey, and to all living beings.
So um, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.